0: Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethakukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Technological progress has remade economies, workplaces, and politics in the past. And will again in the future. And it's up to us whether all those changes make society a better one or a worse one. What will the landscape of these technological changes look like going forward? And how shall our political and economic institutions respond? To answer these questions and more, my guest is Azim Azhar. Azim is an entrepreneur and investor and the founder of Exponential View, where his podcast and newsletter deliver in-depth tech analysis. This month, Azim released The Exponential Age how accelerating technology is transforming business, politics, and society. Azim, welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, Jim, it is great to be here. In a world of swirling numbers of people I follow on Twitter, you are in the elite cadre of people who, every time I see your name and your little Twitter icon show up, I think, I better read this because there's going to be something sensible and thoughtful and thought-provoking. So it is an incredible honor uh, for me to be able to speak with you today.
0: Uh, I am quite confident that my hit rate is something less than hundred percent. So I appreciate the uh, the generous words. Thank you very much. Um, in the preface, I think it's the preface, maybe it's the introduction of the uh, of the book. Yeah. You you quote a poll, and the poll is from last year. Sixty percent of people who responded to this poll said they felt the pace of change was too fast, and that the number of people who said that was up, I think considerably over let's say five five years ago mm-hmm. I, on the surface that would, I think that would seem to support the idea that we're in a period of, of rapid change and who knows, and maybe it'll, it's going to get even faster, but then I thought of the book and it's a, a book. I am sure you're familiar with uh, future shock, the book, mm-hmm. future shock from, I think 19, uh, 1970 Alvin Toffler, And the premise of that book was that we are in a period of rapid change And it was, in fact, it was so rapid, it was driving us all crazy. And that book came out just as a period of rapid growth and technological progress downshifted.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: we entered what some people call the great stagnation. Mm -hmm. Do you have any concern that the fact that people think it's going so fast might actually be some sort of contrarian indicator And we are not entering an exponential age.
1: Oh, I I love that question. I love that question. I mean, people have always, uh, well, have certainly for the last hundred and fifty years felt that things are going too fast. And you can go back to the archives of the New York Times in the nineteen twenties about elevators and uh, the 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 turn of the twentieth century about uh, you know girls and boys reading books at night through using electric light uh, and and. Parents being worried uh, about that. I think what's different uh, this time, and what's distinct to what happened after uh, Toffler made his very prescient remarks uh, 50 years ago is that we can actually see and feel uh, that shift in our in our real economies. Uh, in 2010, uh, the world's largest companies were companies of the 20th century. It was ExxonMobil and oil company and General Motors and General Electric. These were technologies of the era of uh, Rockefeller and Ford and Edison. Uh, and by 2015, all of the world's largest companies are uh, essentially IT companies Sitting on the top of uh, semiconductor improvement rates, and so there is a there is a distinct shift, and it, that's been that's been reflected by the market. It's been reflected by the fact that during the pandemic, the companies that grew were the companies that had invested most heavily uh, in automation, in AI, and it was companies like Amazon, uh, not sort of traditional retailers. Uh, and and so what what I think is is distinct today is that we can go back and and say there is a moment and there, are, there is that, that sense of what the kind of consensual animal spirits of the market has gone off and said, and said, the world looks different now and we don't value an Exxon or a GM the way that we value an Apple or a, a Facebook or a Salesforce.
0: So markets are sending a, a, a signal. And one way to look at sort of your thesis of acceleration mm-hmm. uh, is, is so right now it's passing the market test. Mm-hmm. So I will now let you actually give you give your thesis. What is driving and what will drive an exponential age?
1: Yeah, no, no, thank you, uh, uh, Jim. I mean, the thesis is really that uh, uh, we, the exponential age is really a. a, a discussion about human affairs it's about the interaction of uh, the economy with with politics we can call it the political economy we can call it uh, society uh, and it's predicated on the argument that um, you know technologies shape uh, the way that indus- industries structure themselves, the way that firms compete, uh, the way that labor markets operate and the way that the political process then reflects those those tensions. Uh, and a simple example that many of us will understand given um, you know where we are is that the technology of the internal combustion engine that required oil created an entire geopolitics uh, around oil ultimately. Of course, it created big, great companies like the oil majors and-, and the car companies but it also created a geopolitics. And my argument after a few years' research is that there are a set of new general-purpose technology platforms that have different characteristics than the ones we we were used to in the 20th century. And they, too, will shape our political economy and our societies uh, in very, very distinct ways. And those platforms are the one that we're most familiar with, computing and that clock speed of Moore's law, giving us more for less every couple of years. Um, And then there are perhaps more surprising areas, the field of biology and how we interact with uh, the processes and the mechanisms of nature through uh, genes and through protein engineering. In the field of energy where Mighty wind turbines and dense lithium-ion batteries are getting cheaper and better uh, every year. And, and even in the field of manufacturing where technologies like 3D printing, nascent and slightly niche and weird they are today, uh, are improving at such rapid compounding rates that we can see them changing the way that we actually build our finished goods. And in all of that comes uh, shifts in firm behavior, industry structure, economic uh, performance, uh, and then things that get reflected in the political process or need to get reflected in the political process.
0: The key sort of great technologies and great inventions of the past that had huge effects on our life, just not on our commercial life or our our standard of living, but uh, geopolitics, governing, these are significant technologies. And some of the technologies you, you, you just mentioned, they seem significant, but when you add them all together, are they electrification? Are they the internal combustion engine? While they may, may, they may make, make some people rich and they may make some companies very valuable, they, they are not gonna substantially change our way of life as these sort of great technologies of the past.
1: Uh, it's it, I mean in a sense it's too early to tell. Uh, you know when we think about uh, I think we, we can agree that there's a sort of a concordance around um, the fact that electricity was a general purpose technology and that general purpose technologies with their their wide applicability uh, across and up and down the economy uh, have really really significant uh, I- impacts. Um, then then I suppose the second question is, to what extent do we really think that uh, something like computation is a uh, is a general purpose technology? Uh, and one of the uh, arguments that I would make is that um, there is there is, despite this period of acceleration within the technology, there is an adjustment time that it takes for. Uh, companies and managers to develop the know-how to actually make use of uh, these technologies in in very very useful ways. Uh, and so, you know, we're fifty years from the Intel four thousand and four processor, and still the bulk of commerce is actually done by people physically walking into into retail stores. Right? It's not done electronically. But I'm not sure we can be as confident about that fact in 10 years time as we might have been 20 years ago because it has taken time for uh, the technology to drop in price, for the, uh, the the companies to figure out how to do this um, and then for consumer behaviour to to also change. But one of the things that I, I observe in in the book is that the period of time it does take for consumers to latch onto uh, novel technologies uh, or novel products built on these technologies, rather, uh, has been uh, compressing very, very quickly. And I and I give one example um, in office automation. Uh, this you know, let's call it what it is. It's sort of clever scripting of, of mundane tasks um, of a company called UiPath. And when I wrote the uh, the proposal uh, for the book, UiPath had uh, a couple of hundred employees and a valuation below a billion dollars. Um, by the time I submitted the final, final version to press a couple of years later, um, UiPath had gone public on the NASDAQ with a $35 billion uh, valuation and thousands of employees and thousands of customers. And and so you see that um, that rate of diffusion within the economy uh, just faster than anything we've seen before. Now, the question is, will that show up in whatever economists choose to, to measure? Um, I mean, it might not do this year, but but, you know, in five years time, we can look back and see whether that hypothesis is is really correct.
0: That's the question, even though we can have a debate about how well um, these kind of broad aggregate statistics um, work and track productivity. And there's critique. If we're talking about the kinds of uh, radical technologies, you could say, well, yeah, they're already showing up and they're showing up in the stock market. That's not that is not an insignificant uh, signal. These things are having big impacts on, uh, on our welfare and on business. They should show up. So at some point, though, if you're correct, we should not have a 2% economy. We should have something considerably better than that.
1: I, I mean, we, we should. Theor- theoretically, I mean, I think there are a couple of ways of looking at um, the observation that, that you make. I mean, one question is, um, you know, whether the the gains that we are talking about are measured, uh, are, are being appropriately uh, measured and I, you know, I think about the, um, you know, there's a there's a famous chart uh, that I'm sure you've seen, which shows that the price of televisions has declined, you know, hugely, but that the price of healthcare in the U.S. has increased, and it's always, uh, you know, shown as a, but you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs say everywhere where an entrepreneur has been able to get their teeth into an industry, the price has collapsed. And where they haven't, like healthcare and education, the price has gone up. And, uh, you know, that's often the story. Uh, But I think that those sorts of things belie the nature, the quality of the products that you're getting within that within that price decline as well. Um, and so one question is, do we actually capture many of the benefits? And that's why you see uh, economists like Diane Coyle in the UK or Eric Brynjolfsson uh, out of um, uh, the US saying, well, maybe we need measures other than GDP, which you know I think Eric's has called GDPB or, or, or something, um, that might capture some of the gains that we are not uh, able to put our hands around. And that would certainly be the case in something like um, uh you know some of the biological uh, arenas where some of these advanced gene therapies might um, extend lifespans but they might not extend health spans uh, and so does that really necessarily show up as a as a gdp number in any meaningful way uh, so so i think that that's one argument which is that we're not kind of we're not counting uh the right uh kind of things um the the other argument would be that um there are many other factors that we can't uh, control for in, um, you know, in in the economy. Uh, so, for example, we can't necessarily c- c- control um, forecast uh, birth rates and where birth rates end up, and that often drives uh, GDP. Uh, we don't necessarily control for the. The nature and quality of work that people are doing, and the amount of leisure time that is uh, embedded within within the economy, and that might also be valuable. Uh, so, so I'm I'm I, I suppose I look at your your, your question, and I say I, I say, look, I'm not confident that we'd necessarily see uh, you know a return to a three percent world, uh, you know, in a kind of post-war excitement. But what I do see is I see technologies upending industries uh, in in very very large uh, degree, uh, and that to me is pretty is pretty interesting.
0: Well, let me let me phrase that question uh, uh, differently. Between now and 1980 is roughly uh, 40 years, mm-hmm. and if you ask people in 1980 who remembered 1940, they would say, "Wow, things are a lot different in 1980 than 1940," but some people would say, "Well, maybe things really aren't that different today than in uh, than in 1980." If you're right, our life should look a lot different in 25 years than mm-hmm. than it is today. If we're really going to be, as the subtitle says, transforming—that's a yeah. powerful word—business, politics, and society.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I th- I think it will it will look uh, dramatically different, and I think there's a really distinct difference to um, uh, to today to where we were in um, in 1980 uh, I mean just simply thinking about uh, about supply chains thinking about the fact that you can launch a physical product uh, in five six continents and have, Tens, hundreds of millions of people buy it within a few months. I mean, that simply wasn't possible uh, back in uh, in 1980, and and of course that's what happens now with the later Samsung or or Apple smartphones. Uh, but of course, there's also a a continuum. I mean, a lot of these trends are um, you know are running for quite a long period of of, of time, uh, and even you know the trend of greater integration of global supply chains is something that we can uh you know take back decades and centuries although there's definitely a, i think a shift starting in the in the 60s with the arrival of of containerization for example and then in the 70s and 80s with um you know automation and databases that allowed for more digital uh supply chains so so i think there are things that look distinctly different and if we roll forward in you know, 20 or 25 years. Uh, we won't have an oil and gas industry. We might have a decarbonisation industry. Uh, we will have these um, kind of awkward models that look awkward today of um, personal transportation. You know, today's personal transportation choices are, do I walk? Do I jump in the car? Or do I take kind of public transport, which is more common in Europe than than in the US? Um, and if you get in the car, you're leasing it or you own it outright. And what will that actually look like in 20 years? I think it will be a much more um, fragmented, disaggregated uh, market, a much more highly highly segmented market. So it will look and feel quite different to your know, today's commute, the one that I do at the age of uh, of, you know, forty-nine uh, later in September, twenty twenty-one is very, very similar to the one that I did when in with my parents at the age of nine when they would drop me uh, to to school. They would drive me in a car in a road with traffic lights and traffic jams and the occasional cyclist, and that's what it looks like. And I and I think it'll look different in in twenty years.
0: How will that exponential age be powered? To me, that is almost a fundamental question because what you're talking about is not a kind of old-fashioned. Environmentalist kind of scarcity model. You're talking about abundant. Where's that energy coming from? Uh,
1: a large part of it will come from uh, renewable sources, and I look at um, uh, you, you know the renewables that are on a, on an exponential price uh, decline. So wind and solar and certain types of battery storage, uh, and we're already at a point in 2021 where. You know, according to uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which is an analyst of this stuff, um, you know, new, new renewables are cheaper than uh, fossil fuels in every part of the world. So we've we've got to that point where it's economically attractive uh, to to do this. Uh, I mean, to get the full energy mix, of course, we're going to need more than renewables. We'll need things like geothermal, and we'll need uh, nuclear, and potentially, given the breakthroughs. Um, in uh some of the scientific breakthroughs and engineering breakthroughs in fusion we may even have uh fusion uh, so we will get to a point where uh the we we won't be using fossil fuels as our prime prime mover rather we'll have a mix of things that look big and lumpy like like fusion and geothermal and things that can look very very decentralized uh like um like wind and community solar and rooftop solar matched by storage systems that will range from everything from big grids of lithium-ion batteries to new technologies like that of, of Form Energy, which is an iron-based battery, uh, through to things like hydrogen being used as, as storage. But critically, that hydrogen will be what what is known as, as green hydrogen produced by um, solar or wind-powered electricity through an electrolysis process uh, rather than through, uh, you know, kind of, cracking of natural gas or, you know, reduction of natural gas. And that will be a, a zero carbon uh, hydrogen that will be used uh, for, you know, for storage and for, for shipping and, and for certain types of other transit.
0: I would have guessed 20 years ago
1: mm-hmm. that
0: decoding of the human genome would have created a general purpose biotechnology that by now would be a key element. Of medicine doesn't seem like that has happened what is the case for that happening now with genetic editing CRISPR or I don't know other technologies
1: yeah I, it's a really really great point you know we're not where we thought we would be um, when that first gene was uh, genome was sequenced it cost between 300 and 400 400- million. There's some argument about it. And today, uh, in a market that is dominated by one firm, Illumina, that price is around $1,000. So it's really uh, dropped a great deal. And there's very little reason why it can't uh, continue to drop and drop further. And hopefully new competition will spur those price declines. Um, I I think a a couple of the reasons why uh, it hasn't um, had quite the impact that we might have uh, expected uh, have been to do with a better understanding a better understanding of the science that this is just not about uh, the expression of the genome it's also about uh, the epigenome that the which is uh, a, in a sense a kind of software that sits on top of the genome um, and other parts of, of uh, this uh, this arena called omics. So it's uh, it's about being able to measure and quantify and express mathematically uh, all of the different biological systems that we have. And those scientific breakthroughs have, you know, really are still being made in the last 20 or 30 years. And it takes time for those to be realised. But what we are starting to see with the thousand, sub-thousand dollar genome uh, screens are the more widespread availability of this this technology. And I'll give you one example that I had to cut from uh, from my my book just for for length, which is that in in, in the US, uh, there are certain uh, providers of uh, in vitro fertilization, test tube babies, who will do a um, a genome sequence of the the successfully fertilized um, uh, eggs, Within a couple of days uh, of that fertilization, and through that genome sequencing, they can look for extreme risk factors, health risk factors, so things like um, Down syndrome, but also extreme extreme dwarfism or extreme uh, cognitive uh, impairment, and that information can be used by parents to say which of the one of these sort of successful um, you know fertilized eggs do we actually want to uh, uh, proceed with, and and that. Technology is is available. That service is available for less than a couple of thousand dollars uh, now, and so that's becoming more and more commonplace. And of course, we had the case uh, two or three years ago of the Chinese scientist who sort of you know broke <laughs> every ethical protocol by using CRISPR to edit uh, a pair of twins uh, to sort of eliminate a chance of a particular condition for them. Uh, and so, so the technology is sort of is 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 now getting there. It's getting cheap enough, uh, and some of these use cases will become more commonplace because they're being commercialized and, and business, you know, founders are taking them out to market. Uh, some we will still need to think about because of the ultimately the health risks and the medical risks and the ethical questions they, they raise.
0: I suppose I would like to live to be 120, that would be great, but I, I want to be healthy. And I want my mind to be in good shape. So I guess I don't know if you could call it health span.
1: Health span. So are yeah. Are these
0: technologies going to lengthen lifespan, or just you know maybe not lifespan, but just make us healthier longer?
1: I think we've come from a um, uh, the, the the cultural backdrop that uh, people die and they they die young, uh, and uh, you know like like you you like me probably grew up at a time when if someone got cancer of any sort uh, that was you know really really terrible news and they probably wouldn't survive it and we're now at a point where medicine has allowed us to survive many of the cancers but not all uh and and the question of l- longevity has um you know largely been addressed by uh by by medical science but to your point it's really now about the question of the quality of the, of the life and i think that longevity scientists people like david sinclair uh, and others are really trying to fundamentally use these techniques, use these exponential technologies uh, to validate their theories about what causes aging and how we, we tackle it. Um, I'm not sure it'll necessarily, in its first instances, be things like genetic knockouts rather than changes in in lifestyle. But, but I do think that that the science combined with the the ability to run the experiments and the ability to to apply these technologies to those experiments is telling us about that core question of health span. So for example, I uh, regularly uh, fast intermittently. Um, I also take um, transresveratrol and I take a a supplement called NMD, uh, all of which tackle the parts of the aging circuitry uh, which you know, has been is, is science that's probably fifteen years old in a sense and sort of more robust only five or ten years old. So that question I think is is being addressed and I think it's enabled by these core technologies. Do you
0: think that societies and advanced economies, rich countries, can they tolerate rapid change, perhaps maybe the way they used to? Uh, if one would look back over the past decade, maybe more, you could draw the conclusion that we've become more allergic to disruption Mm -hmm. someone maybe explains the rise of of, of populism Mm -hmm. Uh, and if we're talking about more change do we do we have the kind of government we need to that but do we also have the kind of society that will embrace that and continue to encourage that kind of change again i'm sure if you've watched any of the you know congressional hearings in the united states when they brought up these tech ceos you certainly get the sense that we have a government that doesn't understand technology that's you know ten years old, much less dealing with technology that you know the you know new things coming down the line.
1: Yeah, it's 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 terrifying uh, in a sense, and it's a, such a great great challenge. Um, I spoke with uh, a general who was essentially a four star general, and he was number two in the UK armed forces as part of my research for the book. Uh, and he gave me this line that stuck with me, which is he said that people in the West uh, exist as strategic snowflakes. Uh, and, you know, he he's alluding to what you've just described, right, which is the sense that we're, we're allergic to change because we've got uh, very, very comfortable. Um, and and it is compounded by the fact that the political environment um you know, isn't peopled by people who understand what this what this change looks like. And um, I think the way that we might be able to uh, tackle that. I mean, I think it's partly it's it's books like like mine, which try to be sort of balanced in their sense of possibility and their sense of the of the risks. Um, uh, but it's also this idea that there is a um, you know, a generational shift, um, and and there is a much more of an adept uh, facility that younger people have with the environment in which they they grow up. As to the kind of political uh, dimension, um, I can't speak too much to the U.S. because I'm based in in the U.K. and and what I. See and I read is uh, you know from my mixed Twitter feeds where I try to get a mix of you know the right and the left. You know there is Fox News and there is CNN and 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 so on. But I'm I'm a flaneur of it. But within within the UK, the thing that I see that is interesting is that the political bureaucracy, uh, the civil service, the the regulators they seem to understand these issues and they're increasingly getting people who have done their time in tech companies who now want to provide some public service into these organisations. And so the civil service, the government departments, the, uh, the the regulators are often deeply, deeply thoughtful and really understand the issues. Um, and that's a great positive. Where they get stymied is by the political know-how um, and where the, the politicians are trying to take them, and so it, this ends up being at least it's not a, a problem of intellectual capability within the bureaucracy that has to make this happen, uh, but it, it is a, a problem with with the politicians. So it's kind of it's one it's one big problem rather than a big problem and a medium problem, which I guess is a better place for us to start from.
0: So when Toffler wrote Future Shock, the U.S. was seeing rapid change technologically and also lots of civil unrest. We adjusted to those changes and we didn't go crazy like he had predicted. But since then, we've created these, these online bubbles where crazy ideas like the QAnon movement can thrive and spread. Are you concerned that these changes will make us crazy going forward?
1: I you know I I am concerned I caught use that the lens of the the exponential gap uh to describe that right the gap between where we we sit in our normal everyday habits and customs and behaviors and criticality and where the the, the potentials of the technology but one of the things that really fascinated me uh, was that you know, you see dominant companies in uh, in the in the US in the tech space, whether it's you know Apple or Amazon and, and Facebook. And the, the common argument, and I make this argument myself, is that the the Borkian um, view of monopoly doesn't work very well in the this, this sort of intangible uh, economy, and that the FTC was slightly asleep at the wheel when they thought about how they should create dynamic competitive markets. But the thing that's fascinating is that exactly the same pattern happened, uh, emerged in Europe, and it also emerged in China, which has a really distinctly different uh, sort of uh, you know political e- economic model. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's a commonality of this shift that we have towards these companies that are working in this intangible economy that have these fast-changing technologies that are driving them, uh, that driving them forward. But the thing that has struck me about things that China has done in the last uh, few weeks um, has been that they've that that um, uh, regime has understood, spotted many of the risks, and so in recent uh, weeks they have introduced an incredibly stringent consumer data privacy law with respect to. Um, uh, the 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 sort of big companies, not so much to the state. They have introduced new regulations banning uh, young kids from playing video games. Uh, they've just uh, uh, president G has announced a sort of a so a common prosperity doctrine uh, where he wants technology companies essentially to to contribute to common pools uh, to, Uh, you know, alloy some of the challenges of the changing nature of work. And Alibaba in the last couple of days has contributed $15 billion or announced it's going to contribute $15 billion to that. And and what's interesting is that, you forget the political mechanisms, there's all sorts of complexities around China, is that um, that group has identified some of the Common strains uh, and pressures and tensions that emerge at this moment, this sort of moment that Alvin Toffler predicted 50 years ago. Um, and they've also come up with particular policies that make sense within their cultural and political context. Um, and, and that makes me more confident that we sit at that sort of precipice of chaos and we have to actually stand up and make some adjustments that, that suit. You know, the UK culture and the US culture in their own ways, uh, so that we can take the benefits of all this enterprise and all of this innovation, um, you know, without things kind of going to hell in a QAnon handcart.
0: I, I don't know if you call yourself futurist. You write a newsletter about the future, the book is about the future. But when I hear you talk, what you remind me of is sort of those, you know, 1960s, very optimistic. Futurists, people like Herman Kahn, you know Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, who wrote—they wrote fiction, but they were also considered serious, serious people talking about the future. It seems that profession became less optimistic uh, in the '70s, and mm. it became uh, a lot focused on scarcity and population running wild, and uh, uh, concerns about the environment. And then policymakers stopped taking them serious, mm-hmm. whether it's wrong pre- wrong predictions or they were too pessimistic. Is that is that now changed? Are people who think about the future are they mostly optimistic? Or are they still or is it too much climate change and we have too many people or not enough people and it's all pessimists?
1: I think it's 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 polarized, not quite as polarized as the as the U- U.S. Senate, but it you have a, a group of um, of utopians uh who really think that there is uh you know all one needs to do is innovate uh throw some enterprise at it and you know we 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 risk reach escape velocity and you have uh, a group of people for whom uh you know ai is just embedding bias time and again it's disempowering workers uh and um it is uh you know we we, we sit on the precipice of this of climate climate change and i think where i sit is that it's complicated and most of those things are true, most or all of the time. And let's accept the power of, of the entrepreneur and the power of, of technology and the power of learning by doing and getting into the market. And let's also accept that there are real challenges that we can't just ignore that that won't simply be solved by, uh, by the market. Uh, and that if we want to have harmonious societies that, that improve welfare and, and eliminate risk and create uh, well-being and, and wealth uh, that we have to, you know, recognise that the rough goes with the smooth, uh, recognise that uh, this will be both hot and cold uh, and and it's a journey that we have to bring, bring together. So, so I don't really consider myself um, a, 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 an optimist, but I, I definitely don't consider myself a pessimist because in my experience, pessimists don't get things done.
0: If we look back on this in in twenty years, and it turns out, well, that you should have been a pessimist because that's what happened. What went wrong? Is it that the, the technologies didn't work? Uh, policymakers didn't do what they were supposed to do, or didn't do what they needed
1: to do? I, I think it um, it went wrong because we didn't recognize a uh, a sense of common purpose. Uh, where we could uh work together while um recognizing differences uh and you know that is a, that is a at, the, at its heart it's a very very difficult ongoing uh question of politics of politics between peoples and politics between cultures and politics between uh nations but if it goes wrong it it will be because um we spent time you know arguing um uh, and competing in unhealthy ways when we could have spent time uh recognizing that that technology and that learning and that you know man's a humans efforts and, and enterprise uh is a real gift and we can do a lot with it uh and and you know i think that the last 10 or 15 years i think the language around strategic competition uh that has started to uh emerge um, is is not Entirely helpful, but it's not entirely uh, unhealthy either. Because to move forward, we're going to find some common interests and some areas of disagreements, and that's in the realm of the politicians. And we can pray that we, you know, the quality of our politicians, uh, improves with every generation.
0: My guest today has been Azim Azar, author of "The Exponential Age: How Accelerating Technology Is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society." Azim, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Jim, it was such a pleasure, thank you.